0: for 20% off.
1: Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. It's that time of year, guys. We are into November. A lot of the time, that's the month that everybody is dying for throughout the course of the year. I personally have uh, enjoyed October a little bit more than November most years, uh, for good reason. I'm tagged out, but can't lie, it, it's uh, it's a little agonizing when you're getting all the the text messages. I had a lot of lot of friends and family shoot deer this past week. I had a lot of pictures getting sent to me i had a lot of cell cameras uh i shouldn't say a lot of cell cameras my, my cell phone cameras that i have were pretty active and i was able to spend a little bit of time in the woods here not necessarily hunting for myself i was out um two evening. i was out one evening with a friend of mine and got to see some pretty good activity there were uh, still some doe groups coming on to food sources watched uh, a nice seven pointer i believe he was probably a, a 3 year old deer uh, come out and you know bump some doe around chase them around it was, it was just really cool to see he came right up to us and lip curled and uh, it was it was just neat to see it was a, it was not a deer that my friend wanted to shoot which uh, was was fine but it was a great encounter and then uh, this past saturday I went to a new property with another friend. I got permission there with the mindset that I wanted to bear hunt there, thinking it had the potential to be good for bear. Uh, my scouting kind of told me otherwise. it didn't seem like it was that great for bear. and I had uh, two cameras on this property. neither had any bear sign on it. But I was blown away with the amount of deer sign. and I I don't know that I've ever had a property that was so cut and dry uh a daytime property this this property like i've i've seen properties in places that i've hunted where it was more daylight than nighttime but literally both the cameras that i had were 100% daytime not a single nighttime picture on this camera and i i literally saw deer the, that saturday when we went out from 7:30 in the morning until roughly six o'clock in the evening and it was all throughout the day i think we saw like 16 deer there was uh, there was not there was not really a dull moment throughout the day i mean from seven there was a, there was a the longest spurt of time where i didn't see a deer it was like seven thirty to 11 o'clock and then 11 1 3 4 5 5 like there was just Really, really good movement, and you know, you can attribute that to whatever you want. But I did notice on the cameras when I looked at it, even earlier in October, there was a lot of like abnormally more daylight, even midday, like one, two, three o'clock in the afternoon, movement on this property, which was just a, a really unique observation. But it was literally the second time I ever stepped foot on that property and did a a hang and hunt in the dark and it it was at the top of the hollow and I kind of tried to cheat to one side with the dominant wind direction. I knew the thermal would pull down the hill but I was hoping as the day progressed that I would get a, a little bit of a thermal shift and basically what I learned throughout the day is I didn't read it right and we got winded on the thermal pole and prevailing wind direction and as I was sitting in the stand I looked over at one point we're, we're on a logging road it's just below the top of the ridge it parallels the contour of this this property and I looked over and there was a very large pronounced bed about I'm going to say 20 yards from where we were sitting on this logging road there was a large bed and I was thinking about it throughout this day I was like you know this just makes sense this this deer that laid here kind of has a room with a view because of the location we were you could see a pretty good way it was kind of open pine forest and it you know any deer that was laying here could see danger coming from below and there was there was definitely some thermal pull going down the hill throughout certain times of the day and then dominant wind direction like there, there was just a lot of advantage for a deer laying here, which made it obvious that it was a disadvantage where I chose that stand location in the morning. But live and learn, uh, I made plenty of mistakes like that before. So at the end of the hunt, I actually got down, took the tree stand down, and moved it over about, I'm going to say, 60 to 70 yards over from where we'd originally sat it's going to give that stand a little bit of a better wind advantage than it had. So, hopefully that'll still pan out. I have uh, have some time that, you know, hopefully one of my friends can can put a tag on and go from there. But I'm definitely anxious for uh, for bear season here. I've got a fantastic episode coming up next weekend. We did a, a round table discussion with a couple of good bear hunters we had uh we had mark lesher from last year he came on again and then we also had uh, robbie and his dad and a couple and we also had chopper schrader come on a uh, group of guys that are from our area real good bear hunters and just pick their brains on everything about group hunting and bear hunting that's an exciting conversation for next week and it's it's getting me fired up i was i'm I'm trying to see if i can put a little bit of time in archery bear hunting here i'd like to get an opportunity not sure it's going to happen i might just have to put all my eggs into the rifle bear season and our extended season here in uh during the first week of of deer rifle season but that's okay it's uh those are hunts that i look forward to every single year and you know whatever the rest of the season has in store for me uh we'll see but uh, I hope that you're finding yourself enjoying this time, you know, like I said that last week of October, from my observations seemed like there was very good deer movement, and not sure what it's like this first week of November for you guys. I've been hearing some people say it was a little bit on the slower side at times, not sure if that's you know weather related or not, <clears throat> but hopefully you uh you chose your rutcation time wisely and uh I just wish you guys all the best of luck uh, this week. Our conversation, though, we uh, we spoke with somebody who I've really grown fond of his his principles, his tactics. Listening to his podcast on the network, and that's John Teeter from the Whitetail Landscapes uh, Maximize Your Hunt podcast. John, I I got to know when he came on the network, started reaching out, just uh, texting back and forth. We had some phone calls. And I've I've probably overdone it a little bit and picking his brain sometimes and just gauging what he thinks. But he's been really gracious to offer his opinion on on many different topics and, and share his knowledge about whitetails and white you know how he manipulates properties advantageously for himself in a hunting situation. And he's in my mind he's like you ever watch that. Uh, beer commercial I think it's like doseki's beer and they they have that guy's like he is the most interesting man in the world <laughs> I always I, I was like for some reason like John teeter starts talking and it's like you are the most interesting man in the room like <laughs> John's intellect and the way he thinks and approaches and and explains stuff I I've already had to hit pause reprocess and then hit play again, just to think about what he was saying and, and like put that on a canvas for myself. I'm, I mean, sometimes very, very high level of detail in his descriptions, and yet he also says all the time, and he said this to me, you know, off the air, plenty of times, "Keep it simple. Deer need food. Deer need cover. Deer need water." And he's right, but when you start to go into the minor details of trying to harvest a mature buck and do everything for a mature buck on a private parcel or public land for that matter but for for mature bucks we we definitely overthink it but there are definitely little intricate details that i don't want to miss as a bow hunter and i don't think any of you do and that's probably why you are trying to digest as much information as possible in you know listening to great guests like john and this episode, we, we talk about a number of things. It was one of those episodes where John was just ready to talk and just opened up about whatever we were discussing, and that kind of snowballed into other things. And I love those conversations. When you can get somebody who just like shifts into overdrive and just lets it all out there, it, to me, those are great lessons. And that's how I felt about this conversation with John. We talk about a number of things from just uh, minor manipulation on property. We talk about harvesting does, when it's a good time, when might not be a good time, how to manage that if you're trying to manage herd on a private piece of land and manage population dynamics. We also talk about dealing with fence sitters and Properties that surround you that might not have the same ideologies as you do and how he can kind of combat that in some senses. And we talk about a number of things that relate to your private parcel and setting it up that it's advantageous for the rut. You know, this is uh, the first week of November. A lot of us are thinking, you know, chasing and bedding and bed to feed and cruising and stuff like that. And John kind of goes into some things about how properties that he's worked on or his property lay out or, or things he's done to make it more advantageous to hunt during this time of year. So and the list goes on and the details that we talk about. It's, uh, again, great episode. And uh, I'd really like to know what you guys think of it. So if you would, send me a message, give me a thumbs up, or whatever on facebook and instagram we have at pennsylvania woodsman podcast on both facebook and instagram you know we make our posts every week about the shows that come out and i'd really love to know what you guys think of this episode and i'd love to know what other uh what you think of other other episodes maybe you guys have uh, maybe you guys have had a fantastic season you've got a great story you want to share it with us reach out to us on there or at our email uh, Woodsman podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to hear your story. And uh, if you, if you wouldn't mind, I, I would selfishly like to ask if you listen to our podcast on any of the major platforms like Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, if you could give us a review that goes a long way. It's a big help. Um, we're trying to do everything we can to make this a fantastic resource for the state of Pennsylvania and an entertaining listen for you on your way to work and in your daily travels. So thank you so much for listening to our show. And before we get to this episode with John, I just want to give a shout out to Little Mountain Outfitters, guys. I, uh, I just got the text message from Devon tonight, believe it or not, and he Shot a great buck tonight, and it was his fifth deer this season with the bow. I mean, he had a fantastic season, and talk about going back to those uh, those bow and arrow setups. He he's tinkering with setups all the time. He's put together a setup for himself that is something he he's really interested in talking about. You know, the, the stuff everybody wants to hear: single bevel broadheads and everything else. And he's he's done his tinkering he's learned a lot and if those are things that you're interested in or even if you're not interested in it but you still need to get equipment get set up get restrung anything like that little mountain outfitters Richmond, pennsylvania it's a shop that i would highly recommend to you they have very very they just do a great job they, they pay attention to detail they help you with your questions, they have a ton of experience, and they've got everything you would possibly need for archery hunting, and, you know, it's it's not just an archery shop too, I mean, it is an archery shop, but they've got, like, the the mobile hunting gear that you need, they've got food plot seed, it, it is a fantastic one-stop shop, Richmond, Pennsylvania, you guys, check them out, and without... Uh, going rambling on anymore. Man, it's one of those late nights where I'm just my mind's on a million other things. I got kids screaming in the background. It's like, I don't know what it is. It's like 9:30 at night. Kids are supposed to be in bed. They're not. And I'm thinking about a million things I got to do for work all of the my, all the while. I just want to be hunting. I just want I just want to go up and walk in the woods with my bow and look for a bear or go somewhere and uh somewhere else that i can buy a buck tag it just like it, my mind is just it doesn't turn off and i'm sure you can relate to it i don't know how to i don't know how to deal with it because in all reality it's a it's a busy time of year for me with work i'm trying to get as much done as i possibly can right now and man i just can't get hunt brain uh off of my i just can't get hunting off of my brain it's just not happening it's Gosh, it's one of those years, but I'm sure you guys can relate, and I hope you uh, I hope you guys just have a fantastic week. And good luck the rest of this Archer season. You guys got a few more weeks yet. Grind it out. Remember, even with all the – the, you know, everybody – I've run into so many people that get into these negative mindsets and talks throughout the, the rut this time of year, like, oh, the weather's bad, or, oh, the moon phases, this, all the – like, I get where you're coming from and I've been there too. And I do that mental strain on myself when you're grinding it out and you're not seeing the results you are. But at the end of the day, you got to remember this time of year, deer still need to feed and they still need to breed. And you got to go with the best information you can and grind it out. And guess what? If you lay it all out and it still doesn't work out, it's at least you laid it all out there. That's kind of, that's, that's all you can do at this point, but, um, Deer are still going to be moving, regardless of the weather, regardless of the moon, regardless of whatever deerisms we put out there. Deer are still going to be on their feet. Go out, find them, and make it happen, guys. So good luck to you, and let's get to John. We are rolling, and I have a great guest with me today, somebody that I've... Uh I've probably overstayed my welcome a little bit too much pick in his brain, but we've got um, a fellow network host here on the show with us today, Mr. John Teeter. John, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Yeah, chat thanks for having me on. Um, appreciate it. I'm happy to be on your podcast.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I, I try not to have favorites. Um, I really like a lot of our guys on our network. I love to converse with them. I love to listen to a lot of the episodes, but I think because I am very private land oriented i've really gravitated toward your show john you have a you have a a great show i mean do me a favor and just tell me a little bit about uh your show what you do and and kind of go from there
2: yeah so the show is called maximize your hunt it's produced by me um whitetail landscapes is my business my business is located in new york and you know i travel throughout the country mostly in the northeast i like to stay in the northeast because i don't like to get on a plane a lot um and I've been fortunate over the past 15 years, actually 17 years, I've been working and managing hunting properties for different individuals. And I started years and years ago doing my own family property. And through that trial and tribulation, I had learned quite a bit. I was in my early 20s. You know, I was I was in the hunting industry in a different capacity. And I I just started to diagnose things at a kind of finer level. And through that process, you know, I've built this business. And uh, through the network, I've been able to kind of explore that. The cool part about the, the Whitetail Landscapes podcast, uh, other than, you know, I'm a Northeast guide and it's a little bit unique perspective is, I've got folks from the Midwest, the South, you know, um, all over the place, land managers that do this professionally. And as a result of that, what, what you get to learn is the different strategies in the different areas. Um, you know, what the juries are doing on their landscape might be slightly different than what I'm doing on my landscape. And there's behavioral differences in the deer uh, based on the type of populations and the age structure and that changes kind of your overarching strategy and so there's a lot that goes into building a property and this could be you know we have a hunting tactics person steve shirk who's from pennsylvania mm-hmm. um, we have just a slew of different individuals contributing to that and they're consistent individuals so you get to hear their stories and learn their systems and hunting and land management is system-based and if you don't think of it that way you're kind of missing the boat and that podcast is intended to build upon kind of the fundamentals and give you kind of the ideology and shift your mind, a paradigm shift into doing something more correct or accurate the way we view it as land managers. So you get professional guys with high aptitude that do this on a daily basis or it's consulting like me or you get somebody that does the implementation work. You get some real practical advice. That's why I'm happy that we have that podcast.
1: And one thing I like too, and you you did uh, mention that is it's not just um the habitat manipulation it's not just how to do food plots, how to create bedding areas, how to do this, all this there's a lot of really, really great hunting strategy part of that and I think it's easy you know we're in information overload nowadays and it's easy to watch YouTube to read articles and you know follow different land managers and talk about all those how to's but not connect that back to a hunting strategy that's efficient. Um, I've said this before, Um, there's a lot of really, really, really good hunters out there that I don't know would make the best managers out there when it comes to manipulating a property. They understand uh, a lot about the behavior of of a whitetail, but maybe not in the sense of condensing it to a small parcel and... You know, another thing that I've really learned, and um, like I said, I'm by no means a, an expert anywhere like you, like yourself, John. But you, know, you talked about comparing different parts of the country and uh, the behavior of a Midwest deer compared to a, a deer in the Northeast, where we're a little bit higher pressure. Um, that that's a big deal, first of all. And I think that hunting pressure and that behavior has a, a major difference when you're coming up with decisions on your property from Pennsylvania, North New York, and North you know, the Northeast compared to the Midwest. I mean, uh, what is is it just that cut and dry when you talk about hunting pressure on a property having the impact?
2: Yeah, so it does. I mean, if you think about hunting pressure, I think of a strategy of a couple guys. We had Andy May on my podcast recently Mm -hmm. and his aggressive tactics. Now he's doing these aggressive tactics, not in his home state of Michigan. He's doing in in the really good to hunt areas. Um, Same thing with Andre DeQuisto. I mean, these are some of the best of the best guys. Andre DeQuisto's bump and dump strategy. If he came to New York and did that, he's done. Um, Mm. And It's it's parcel dependent, right? And it's what's happening in your environment. But the level of pressure um, that's inconsistent will drive deer out of areas. And so my strategy at least my strategy generally with clients, you know, private landowners, is making as much portions of that property, unaccessible or unhuntable. Um, and from the standpoint of we want to leave those areas alone, building kind of that sanctuary mentality. Now I'll go into those sanctuaries and I will put a ton of pressure on those deer. I meaning I'll go in there and I'll work and work and work. And a lot of times they correlate that with uh, a benefit. And I've said this maybe on my podcast a little bit, but I'll go in an area and I'll always have my chainsaw with me and I'm always running my chainsaw uh cutting 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 and there's a resource of food associated with that so it's a positive stimuli so you're creating this behavioral environment that's positive now getting into season and we're talking highly pressured ground we'll just talk about my my own neighborhood uh there's seven guys that hunt the property adjacent to me and they hunt it all the time right their volume of pressure influences deer movement on a daily basis one the deer won't co-locate near their hunting areas because of the volume of pressure they're cutting their boot track, they're smelling them in the tree stand, whatever the case may be, that pushes a deer into a different area. As a result of that, my property has limited pressure on it, right? I'm sucking in deer on a constant basis. That's if, if I have all the habitat elements I need to control and manage that deer herd. And by the way, I'm a 46, 48-acre property. There's only so many deer that you can hold on that property. Mm. But getting back to your original question of pressure, I think out of all the categorization of what's the most significant um, that lead, lead, leads to deterring deer, deterring deer movement on a positive, you know, long jaunts of movement, um, you know, things that you want to see on a, a very um, uh, natural basis. That all goes away. So their distance that they're moving is going to be really kind of shortened. So in my design philosophy, I have to make everything really, really tight, really, really segregated. And I really got to stack up the habitat elements in each one of these segments. And that's the difference between somebody that knows how to manage highly pressured ground versus in the Midwest, you do some changes. Maybe you have some similar strategy, but you're not worried about the same thing. So this, I don't know if that gives you kind of an understanding, but I I definitely think the strategy hunting wise and design wise are a bit different in the Northeast than, than, than the Midwest or the South, et cetera. At least when it comes to hunting pressure.
1: Yeah, that would make sense. So you talked about seven people or whatever uh, parcels, people, whatever that is around you. So can, can you just, maybe touch base a little bit. How, how do you deal with that much pressure? How do you deal with fence sitters, that type of thing? Because that's a major question that gets asked among a lot of people and that think you can't do anything positive on a property of that size.
2: So um, I always look at their access first. So I look at where the neighbor's accessing their property. And from the, from the access point, um, I'll look at like how they apply pressure to the adjacent properties, that's first. So think about, you know, somebody's coming in and uh, an east side and they're walking, maybe they're not utilizing the wind. And I'll, I'll even look at the time and frequency of them hunting. So like, I think there's probably on an average, I will just say hunting season, which let's say it's 90 days. There may be 10 good hunting days. Well, when I'm not hunting, I'm scouting the neighbors. I'm looking at the frequency they're hunting, how they're accessing their property, and just thinking about, okay, well, the wind's in this location, they're doing this. They don't understand the impact across their landscape. As a result of that, in those areas, I'll keep those areas pretty much open so I'll use the neighbors pushing deer into my property on a consistent basis. Now, if I know a neighbor's got a bulletproof access stand, I'll cut him off. Um, I've got one neighbor who sits below me and for years and years and years he shot big bucks off the property that I bought. So for the past three years, he's seen a total of like, I think three deer and he's shot big bucks every single year. So we, I just redirected the deer around him. So at this point, he doesn't even see deer anymore. And that was a primary spot, easy access location, it's in a thermal hub where everything drops down. It's ideal conditions. Uh, if I was to create an ideal condition, a, a nice parcel that I'd like to buy at some point, I just really cut the guy off and he doesn't now have an opportunity to, to harvest those deer. So to me, you've got to look at where they're accessing, if they're access locations, if they're hunting them at the correct times, and what pressure they're applying to the deer. And that will kind of give you an idea of how you want to start to build your property Surrounding you know your neighborhood pressure that makes sense.
1: It absolutely makes sense. And onto the uh, keeping on the pressure thing, um, not that I was really thinking we'd get into a, a big like herd dynamic and you know herd management aspect of this conversation, but uh, part of herd management obviously is is shooting doe. And one of the things that I've really struggled with in making my own decisions is when is the right time to shoot a doe? And is there a, is, is there a place in your property that you de, you designate you're not going to shoot doe at certain time of the year or something like that? I mean, in all all scheme things, you know, I've, I've talked about this plenty of times, you know, across a lot of Southeast Pennsylvania, um, it's astronomical where our deer numbers are at in some places. Uh, I, I, it seems like our herd carrying capacity is kind of out of, out of the, uh, just out of, cahoots in a sense and um a lot of mentality of waiting to shoot a buck waiting to shoot a buck and i'm guilty of that too i mean i want to kill a good buck too but i also want to do my due diligence fill my freezer and have a a positive impact on my property so with pressure in mind can can you just dive you know invest a little bit of uh of uh, thought into that
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's personal, right? So I think if you're setting your goal and I set my goals before before the season, I look at, you know, what my habitat looks like up to the season, how I'm managing it, what my plan is, long-term maintenance. I'm thinking about the availability of food. Now on your property, you can kind of calculate the volume of food uh, seasonally. So you have a rough idea of how many deer your property can roughly house, like just, just thinking like seasonally what the food source is. So that's number one. Then you think about you know, your carrying capacity is related to that. You wanna have a carrying capacity lower, obviously, than your food availability. It allows those next generational deer to kind of, I guess, express themselves uh, genetically and nutritionally, right? They have the value of your landscape. Now, from the next standpoint, you're looking at, okay, shoot no shoot decisions and when. So I'm actually looking at seasonally, how many deer I'm pulling in, how many deer are immigrating on my property, how many deer are consuming based on that immigration, the volume of food. But before that happens, I've got those seasonal deer that that kind of flow in and out of the property. Then I've got those resident deer. Now, if I've I'm trying to build more deer on my property currently, because um currently I, I don't have that many deer, and I, I really never had a lot of deer. But with the habitat changes, I housed four fawns this year. This is 46 acres. that were very consistent. And what I've realized is I haven't segmented my property enough. Think of a property in layers of a cake. I haven't segmented my property enough to hold Bucks and does in different spaces. And I knew that going into, I guess, last year, I said, I'm building the habitat, but I'm not segregating areas well enough. And I'm not compounding or making these areas more complex and able to hold more deer. When I get get back to your point of shoot-no-shoot, no shoot. if I have too many deer on my landscape, I'm shooting as frequently and often as I can. Obviously, on the edges of my property, those are ideal scenarios right? because we want to keep a large percentage, even 80% of your property in sanctuary. But areas around that, I don't want necessarily to be considered sanctuary. I want them to be highly accessed areas that you're using on a frequent basis that the deer are used to cutting your track. And by the way, they're not relating your energy, your scent, anything to anything negative. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. And the idea of having a track around a property is a great idea. If you're walking your dogs, if you're putting pressure on your property and you're Pushing deer interior property, now it depends on the relative size of your property. So mine's not a good example of that. But if I had a 100-acre property or 200-acre property, I may segment it in certain areas and put pressure, and then I'm putting ideal food sources literally on the edge of those. And those food sources, picking those right locations and building the habitat around that, it's really critical. All right, let me answer your question. So I would, depending on my volume of deer, I would kill those resident deer that I wanted to lower the population. I'd kill them right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Um, if I had a chance to kill right off the bat I'm killing right off the bat Um, if it's so happens to be there's a big buck in an area and he's a target deer and he comes in first he's dying or if I got a better chance I'll kill that deer because the level of the service that happens after killing those resident deer obviously could disturb that buck so I'd pick and choose you know pick and choose what my strategy there is but again set your strategy early like this year based on my carrying capacity we need to shoot three does this year if I'm not trying to increase the herd Um, and, and in my area I'm debating what's the right thing to do right now. Should I shoot those three does? Should I not shoot those three doe? Um, that are very, um, uh, you know, very resident on my property. So I think it's weighing that a little bit. I love late season. So I love whacking deer. And this is, this is what the juries do. Mm-hmm. So um, Perry's on, on our podcast, right? He, he's our land manager. And Perry shoots most of his deer late season. Now they'll kill deer during the season, but they shoot most of their deer and they're shooting 40 to 50 does later in the season, they're shooting them late season on those late season food sources. So they knock out their bucks and they get into these immigrating deer herds and they start killing those deer because they aren't as resident and they don't want them taking away from the food sources that they have for their their populace of of resident deer or big bucks for that matter. And by the way, in these farm country areas, deer are bouncing all over the place. Mm. Uh, In forested land, I know that they move and their areas may change seasonally but they're not moving the same distances that some of these agricultural deer move, particularly this time of year.
1: Right. That uh, the, the, the placement and the consistency of food sources across the landscape are a little bit different. I mean, if you've got one farm in a 10 square mile, that's got uh, a bunch of, of food standing in late, late season, that's different than, you know, the big woods of Pennsylvania where the, the, the food sources are kind of a little bit more consistent across that landscape. Um, yeah. You know, I, I it seems like with uh, areas, and I don't know what it's like in some of the areas you uh, you get to go across the country. You know, we, we've got very a very uh, segmented and parcelized landscape in Pennsylvania, a lot of small properties adjacent to each other. Uh, you start adding one person per property. Um, nobody wants to shoot a doe. It's it's very mixed ag in a lot of Pennsylvania. Um, it just seems like it's it just becomes almost an impossible feat. I feel like there's cases where if if you're struggling to work with neighbors and try to shoot doe, it, you're almost like the, the one who's got to do all the work in shooting doe, and I feel like if you, you go too heavy on a high pressure, or with that high pressure you have too high of a deer density, um, you're almost like, shooting yourself in the foot if you're trying to shoot a mature buck it, it's just it, it's so hard for me to gauge and by no means am I a, a, a population uh, expert I just look at the amount of food on a property like you said and when they're when food plots are lip high and the bedding areas browse down to nothing I just look at it and say well it, it needs to have some deer shot It's just it's very very difficult to to gauge um, with that parcelization I think and, and the amount of neighbors hunting
2: this is gonna be a little controversial but I'll go there um, so let me let me give you a solution for your particular situation because I have to deal this with, with a lot Pennsylvania' is a good example um, you get these kind of uh, gray beards that that again you know you shoot a doll you're killing the next generation there's that simple mindset um, you get these other folks that say well you know um, you know I don't have the, the I don't have an enemy to shoot a doll um, and it's like meat is meat is meat is meat. Like we're shooting deer for meat. If your intentions are beyond that, that's where you start. That's fundamental. Antlers and bigger deer and all that kind of stuff. Bigger deer, more meat, right? I, I can relate to that. But we're shooting deer. The intention is to get meat, right? Number one. If that's not your intention, I question what your purpose behind hunting mm-hmm. is. And uh, beyond that, though, when we're talking about food sources and we're talking about building a property that has a population issue, now you can't do more than what you can do on your property. And I would say be diligent about trying to take the same volume on an average basis. 30% is typically what the population numbers are, and that's pretty standard across the Northeast. So basically, um, you know, if that relates to shooting fawns because their consumption rates are higher, um, you know, or or those older age class does that are less productive, um, you know, it depends on what you're trying to do, but I would try to shoot the deer that are most productive in the deer herd. So that would be those two, three-year-old does, right? Because they are they have the higher chances of producing, you know, duplicate fawns, triplets, which is a rarity, but usually duplicate fawns. So you're trying to lower the population that way. So you're specific and very healthy does that are of a certain age class. Um, I would still shoot the other does because they're painful and they usually have personalities that bother us like we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. And they tend to create more distractions in in the in the woods um and and they'll actually because they're so in those cases are sometimes territorial um you know deer are a little more passive than territorial they'll create more space issues with bucks so you'll have issues with does taking up space that that largely you would hope the bucks would be taking up for that matter so there's another reason to shoot older age class deer um but when we're just talking about um design and setup i'm getting a little bit off topic here I would certainly take off the producing does that are, you know, the most productive on the landscape. Uh, I would consider shooting fawns uh, and just, again, again, lowering that next, you know, very consumptive, highly consumptive deer. Um, and then I would lastly um, start triggering those, those older age class does um, that become problem uh, nanny bucks or whatever mm-hmm. you, or nanny does or whatever you want to uh, diagnose them in from a name standpoint. But when it comes to landscape design, this is the trick. This is like the trick. Um, when you have highly valued food sources, like high, those prefer high protein diets, right? Mm-hmm. That's like known fix. Everyone understands that. Uh, their digestive demands are a lot different. Um, they require and crave highly nutritious food. When you lower that food bar, you're going to attract more boss, period. Um, so not having food plots is a positive. Uh, having native vegetation, uh, young saplings, right? Seedlings, um, stump sprouts, any of those type of food sources, large clear cuts become highly valued in those circumstances and in managing those. So I would switch to more fibrous food sources, which are browse material. That'll be a, a detractant or less utilized food source as compared to these high protein mixes. Now, the other thing you could do and again, a valued, if you're going to still do food plots, let's think about those food plot sources that are lower in protein, okay? Um, and so you're going to make some selection decisions based on that. So that would be like a grass. They have lower protein base. And so I would start selecting those um, as as a resident food source that doesn't have the, I guess, uh, attraction value that some of the other plants uh, may have. Um, and it could be ryegrass for that matter, uh, and annual ryegrass, which everyone's so concerned with. I'm not concerned with that. In fact, I put ryegrass in shrubland bedding areas so I can manage those and they become a resident food source and a great area. It's a comfortable area to land. Mm-hmm. That's a great strategy for kind of building a shrubland area. And we're talking about vegetation pipes. So. I went all over the place there, but no,
1: that's fine. It's 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 stirring up a lot of thought. And you said about the annual ryegrass. I remember listening to one of your podcasts, and you were talking about that, which was kind of uh, different than what you hear across. To kind of go against the grain, you were kind of talking about planting annual ryegrass or something like that um, in a bedding area. It's a it's a lower quality food source. They still have to move to a higher quality food source from a food source. But you're doing everything you possibly can to, to hold deer on there. And, um, another thing you said, and I kind of wanted to pick your brain on this one a little bit. So I I was conversing with some of my, my hunting partners here and, uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up this ideology that when you hear it, you're probably going to know the specific land manager that pushes this, but we won't mention names, but, um, you know there was uh, there there's this concept out there when it comes to private land that when you when you build high quality attractive food plots the app the the closest relevant bedding area of highest quality vegetation, thick, high stem count, that's going to be associated with, uh, with does and, and fawn groups that those doe groups are going to overtake that first. And then behind that is going to come up with a structure of, of location for a buck to bed. And what I find so interesting, when I think about some of the properties that I hunt, um, there, there's a couple of properties I have where there'll be a, a a food plot, uh, thick chop off type, uh, cover right adjacent to that. I mean, I'm talking uh, shrubs, high stem count, woody brows, stump sprouts, all that stuff you said, right next to that in the vicinity. And what I find so easy, those are the food plots that when you look at on a camera, those hold the most daylight buck activity and a fewer amount of does versus a food plot where there might not be as high of quality habitat surrounding that. Maybe it's uh, still kind of closed canopy forest, might be some... Uh, overstory removal, but it's not quite the same as that chop off. And those are the places that seem like overloaded with dough. Am, am I seeing something that you've seen in the past or is there merit to what I'm thinking here? Or, or what are your thoughts when I say that?
2: Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. The concept of putting doughs. So again, the, the nutritional demands dictate where deer you want to be period, right? <clears throat> that's, that's number one. So let's build off that. So if we're trying to talk about like surrounding, Interests and in why deer are co-locating in certain areas. Some of that's unknown behaviorally It's hard to understand what a deer wants to do. I mean, they're free creatures, right? I would argue That in a food plot setting if you're balancing kind of your plants You're creating enough vegetation and structure in there and you're limiting visual acuity. You're limiting their visual distance to travel um, like I'll just give you a good example uh, I, I just cut my corn and I cut all these trails through my corn right past my the corn has already been eaten the corn essentially is stripped and it was the only intention behind that was I was cycling my soil but the other intention was to create cover I wanted food and cover in combination in that area the utilization of bucks in that area is way higher than it would normally be. open spaces are not necessarily a positive but highly pressured ground so in concert you're adding features into those areas breaking it up visually giving available food sources at certain points in that food plot. It could be berry bushes, you know, briars have a tendency to be green later in the season. And as a result, they're highly edible. Um, and also remember that, you know, natural food sources are free. So it's not as costly of running a tractor. Um, and a lot of times I can do a lot of these food plots, you know, just with very simple equipment. You know, it's a backpack sprayer, weed whacker, walk by and brush cutter. And I, if I didn't have resources, those would be my first Options. When I was in college, that's what I did. I used uh, those are the equipment needs that that I was able I was able to afford that, and as a result of that, do that. Now, separately, thinking about relative distance, um, I want those deer as close as I can without me disturbing them from a hunting standpoint, right? So, um, I've killed some bucks that have been located uh, directly on a food plot, right? If it's the right volume of cover, and their bedding areas are somewhat isolated. Uh, within that cover and they're not grouping meaning they, they won't hold multiple deer absolutely a doe or buck can sit in that area but likely if a doe has uh their maternal right they have a group of deer together they're not likely to choose a very kind of a amended or appendage area that's segregated and isolated so by choice and, and typically older deer uh, they tend to isolate themselves may choose a location and i've killed deer on multiple locations in those circumstances near food plots now I'd rather hunt transition areas if I can, but on small parcels, when you're trying to create kind of these sanctuaries that we talked about earlier, you're, you're, a lot of times you're going to be on food sources. So it's really important to make those food sources feel smaller and create more vegetation at their height. So the, so their bodies are brushing up against things. They, they feel kind of camouflaged in the environments that they're, that they're walking through. And that seems very basic, but a lot of people have these very open, luscious spaces that you can see 150 yards and like, You won't see one design that I come up with that concept at all, Mm. unless it's a destination area. And even in those cases, we're still isolating those destination areas to limit social pressure. Social pressure is a big thing with deer dynamics that people miss out on. How do the deer socially interact? Like I was talking earlier about the nanny doe, that nanny doe might push out that resident buck that would maybe co-locate near a food source because of her personality. Guess what? She's going to die on my property. And so I was telling you earlier, mm-hmm. you know, identifying a specific deer with a bad personality that's not passive that needs to be killed. And so you can start to diagnose the deer dynamic. I would suggest everyone keep your cameras on video mode and see how these does interact within their own matriarchal group and then try to understand how they're, they're interacting with other deer in the area. Um, it's the same thing with bucks. Uh, bucks have a tendency to be very isolated. Some are more social than others. Um, some are more mobile, some are sedentary. So you're starting to pick out their, you know, their behaviors and starting to diagnose. Is that a deer that I want to shoot or not shoot? If that makes sense.
1: Oh, it absolutely makes sense. Okay. Uh, Um, shifting gears in this conversation, um, you know, you'd brought up, you mentioned something about, uh, something along the lines of maybe, maybe say 10 days in a hunting season that are, you know, really top notch quality days. And uh, I I feel like podcasting, videos, um, anywhere there's content... That is one of the most controversial things. Everybody has their own opinion, and there's like you know people that you know jam it down your throat that there's these rules that you need you know this moon phase and this weather phase and this blah 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 blah. And uh, I was on uh, the the Deer Camp Edition episode uh, last week with with Josh Rayleigh, and they were they, we were talking about just picking everybody's brains. And I I've since come to the conclusion here recently with my hunting that um, when it when it comes to when I want to hunt, it's it's for me, I have to be able to get into a stand location and get out without being seen, heard, or smelled and have the lowest minimal impact and, you know, the the right wind direction. And that's the only thing anymore for me that matters. Now, for me, I, is is there some things that might help you along the way and make maybe make better deer movement? Yeah, I mean, I like to hunt a cold front. I like to hunt a lot of different things and changes. But at the end of the day, I've I've just come up with my own personal opinion that that wind direction and not being detected where I hunt is the most important thing. So, you know, with all that in in mind, you know, if you're looking to try to shoot a good buck on your property, um, and you can take this from the angle of uh, targeting a specific deer with a specific behavior. Or uh, just generally speaking, I'm trying to shoot this age class of a deer, and I'm trying to maximize, you know, as you say, maximize your your hunt from a, a hunting strategy standpoint. What do those ten days actually look like? Is that is that a loaded question, or is there some specific things that um, you find more beneficial than another?
2: Um, oh, it's all over the place. So um, I'm so I hunt highly pressured ground. I do not have a big cohort of bucks making it to the next age class, right? So if you looked at my, um, you know, the change of of typically in our areas, I can plot out generally what the, the die off rate would be from age class, year and a half, two and a half, three and a four and a half, right? And as you start to hit those older age class, there becomes fewer and fewer deer. When you're able to like diagnose one deer and focus on one deer. So on my property, I'm focusing on one deer right now. It's a deer that I'm not sure I want to kill. But I'm starting to break down his his preferences. And when you start to focus on one deer, it becomes very easy. Well, why did he locate himself in this area? And you tell yourself a story. Most of the time on my property, the way it's designed, um, wind is the predominant factor. I'm a huge proponent of wind-based betting. period, Mm. period. Uh, If I'm focusing on bucks, for that matter, and bucks that don't run in pairs or triplets or whatever the case may be, isolated deer, um, they move at certain times for certain reasons and most times for security purposes. So let's keep that basic, right? That's that's in their plethora of importance. That's number one is survival, right? And being in a secure area, that's why we focus on sanctuaries or in the conversation. But on top of it understanding how wind moves through an area, the wind speeds relevant to that. So there's a buck that's a three-year-old that's to me, he's he's a quality deer in my area and by the way, I hate to say this, I only have one three-year-old on my property right now that's not even consistent. And, and I'm being vulnerable in explaining that, but on that property, you know, the wind, I, I, I've got three moments of movement that I've had to break down. Where he was, why he traveled through an area, and then how am I gonna continue to collect data on him? Because he knows how to skirt my cameras, he's proven it. He's picked off every camera across my property. That I've had like position, I thought correctly. And I, again, I like highly elevated cameras, um, looking down trails, not, uh, you know, cross a trail, um, parallel, but they got to be elevated. But I've got a couple areas where I can't do that. He picked those cameras off left and right. Now he knows he knows what's going on. He's got enough awareness that he can associate my touch on that camera with a negative stimuli and cognitively he can't process that but physically he knows spelling that you know in his body he recognizes that's a negative stimuli and as a result of that he moves out of those areas so back to the question earlier of diagnosing movement it's a combination of weather i think weather basically trumps everything you could talk about moon phase and recently we had this great movement period from october 6th to october october 2nd to october 6th that early season movement was crazy this year one of the primary factors was the weather conditions of the temperatures were about perfect based on their current status, right? Their their coats, right? The ability to thermoregulate in areas that weren't too hot, wasn't too cold. It was just perfect conditions. On top of it, I do think that moon phase had an impact on that. The moon, it was in perigee, right? And so these full moon phases where the moon is as close as can to the Earth, there's a impact as a result of that. And and so you're you're going to experience that again, and in, in probably another two and a half weeks, so three to four days or five days prior to the hitting perigee, meaning where that moon is closest to the earth, that movement factor is gonna be really, really high. But that's totally trumped by weather conditions. So I stick to weather conditions. So first I wanna figure out where deer are and how wind moves through the landscape. I wanna build a property that can hold deer in multiple locations. I wanna segregate them and I wanna be able to collect data in each increment as they move through my property like a cake. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I start with wind and wind speed.
1: You definitely answered it. And like I said, it's a loaded question, what I just asked. And I think that's just giving us a glimpse of somebody who has a lot of experience on properties um, that's very relatable to people who listen to this podcast and, and kind of hunting strategy around that. Um
2: well, Mitchell, this podcast come out next week.
1: So I'm going to, uh, this'll be, um, dropping, I think it's going to be the the first week of November, which is kind of okay. where, uh, where I wanted to go with my next question. Um, okay. so, you know, when it comes to property design, are, are, are you thinking and, and relating it to hunting strategy, um, I hate to say this too but it's true i feel like um the the first two weeks of november when everybody's really really gung-ho to be out in the, the the deer woods and this is the best time of year and this and that i i hate to admit it but i haven't had my best um experiences when it comes to seeing mature deer um i haven't had it during those two weeks and i i think the more that i i tinker around with land management and watch deer and this, this type and that, um, the, the more I, I don't like that, that, those two weeks, um, especially w- with, with rel- relative to my goals, you know, my goal is to try to shoot, you know, a, a mature deer relative to my area. Maybe that's a, a three-year-old, maybe it's a four-year-old, whatever. True. Um, yep. but I, I really struggle those two weeks. I, I, I feel like that the, 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 the first half in October is a, is a really good chance um for, for me to see a mature buck and uh, you know I already shared I, I uh, opening night I had a, a great encounter great great hunt um so you know as we're going through into the rut can you tell me a little bit about how you view your property from the beginning of archer season in towards the rut and does that hunting strategy change I, and I guess that's relative to you know hunting mature deer or specific deer too
2: so this year, I'm actually going to hunt the rot. I typically don't spend time hunting the rot. So the breeding phase to me is out. Um, normally, I want to be done as quick as I can during hunting season. The problem I have is I have two deer that I'm interested in that I don't think I will be able to kill uh, during early season. One of them I have a higher probability of, but he's, he's, he's hiding on me. And um, they're moving at very short increments, right? The distances that they move during light, are very, very short right now. You know, we're talking 50 to 80 yards. So in order to get that close to a deer in his bedroom on an area that's uh, audibly hard to get towards uh, are almost impossible. So now, you know, you blow the roof off it and the rut comes. Well, the problem is, is their movement becomes way less predictable. It's hard to figure out where they're co-locating um, and working those do- different doe groups. Now, you may know the areas that deer are, have a tendency to be more resident in those are usually high stem count areas right but diagnosing those hem- high stem count areas with appropriate food sources is the key so why my property's gotten better is i'll take a i'll take an area that's relatively flat and i will put the right amount of vegetation and visually so i can only see certain distances i'll break it up and then i'll put food sources right in the center of it and it's almost like a food plot within a food plot, because on the edges of it, there's cut timber, and there's structure, and there's open areas, and there's closed canopy areas. We call it in with my clients open, intermediate, and closed. And so we create these variability in these landscapes, and then you place food in those areas, and it could be food of lower value. We talked grasses earlier, a simple recommendation will you winter rye. Um, you'll see more activity in these bedrooms. Now, if you can make these bedrooms like I don't know, half an acre to an acre, maybe even two acres big, that large, and then you're just controlling their movement in and out. It creates that, makes that rut hunting so much more productive. I don't get right in those areas. I hunt the deer in transition because I take the same mentality in building a sanctuary into these areas. And this is really some of these are these are my secrets to design when I'm designing a hunting property. But how I cut, what species I cut, that's all on site. particular, how I pick these locations. So there's a little bit more to, to meets the eye. But when the hunt season starts to increase and their movement increases, their predictability decreases when it comes to the rut. So I'm I'm not a rut hunter, so to speak. And I think a lot of people fall off and say, well, I'm not seeing any deer. Well, you are. They're just concentrated maybe in a different area. And by the way, the areas that I hunt, like I said earlier, the dynamic is such where there's not a lot of deer making it to the next age class. The rut intensity is a lot lower. Um, if you've got like a lot of year and a half and two and a half, You'll see variability in breeding. Um, these deer move in very sporadic cycles. Um, you'll see um, does being very easily; they're easily able to evade those bucks because those bucks are not as sophisticated. Um, and they, the the uh, whole situation is a little bit unique. And so, once you get into, in my opinion, the rut phase of hunting, you're kind of. I guess, shooting in the air, hoping something good's going to happen. But I actually think I'll be able to kill a a random, decent buck this year if I don't up to that period of time. I told you I got to go to Ohio for uh, a project and then I'm back. And so I'm missing like a couple key days in there at the 25th and 26th. I think I'm back the 27th and I mean, if I can drive all through the night one night, I will get back. It's um, kind
1: of funny. You, 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 of course, this doesn't air on, that anybody can can view our, our conversation through the computer here. But when when he said that he has to go to Ohio, there was a little bit of an eye roll there, just to the side, a little bit, like, ah, oh, I gotta miss this.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. I'll I'll be I'll just be frank, right? I don't want to work on properties or anything this time <laughs> of year, right? Um, I want to be selfish. I also, you know, I'm on properties all the time, so I'm diagnosing. You know landscape features and coming up with plans for these clients to be productive and you know it, it gets a little bit daunting right there's a lot that goes in there there's a there's a there's an education piece of it and there's also an interaction piece you got to get through to these guys and and by the way i don't know everything so i'm learning from the clients as well and their individual needs and how they view things are all part of the equation and trying to diagnose that becomes a little complicated because i have my theories right and i have my system well mm-hmm. Most people are going to break out of it and, and do their own thing and yeah. usually you know they may find their own success and that's a good thing as long as they're they're keeping kind of the framework the basics together and i i don't think you get that on youtube i think watching all these videos with guys and you know oh put a scrape there or do this or do that it's like go back to the basics and um you know like scrape activity to me is ridiculous Oh, straight activity will really increase here in the next week and a half and we we'll get a cold front uh, this is going to be past the, so like, I think the 19th is going to be really good this, this next, next couple of week Um, I'm going to probably go out and shoot a doe because, because it's time to continue to shoot does for me. Um, I think when it comes to breaking down a property, every property has its annual demands. Deer are going to use it seasonally different and it's, it's a factor of hunting pressure, the habitat type, soil quality, you know, just, there's a, there's a bunch of, you know, the, the type of plants that are on that landscape as it relates to the soil. And there's all these things that go into the dynamics of how deer use property. Um, and then in my cycle, like the way I hunt is I don't get annual patterns because most of my deer get killed. So the deer that are smart enough, they have to constantly evade and basically edge themselves so or level up in order to not get, get slaughtered. So their they're, their movements are quite irregular. I'm not hunting the same annual patterns. Anybody around me that is able to hunt annual patterns and kill deer. And I think a Don Higgins was talking about this. I listened to a podcast recently and I'm like, man, you ought to come out to to New York Mm because they would be lost. They would be completely lost. You have to be very dynamic. You've got to be able to move and shake and get data and have that most recent information to make those decisions to kill a deer. And I'm not saying it's easier out in the Midwest. It's different. Boy, it's different. It's
1: different and that, that you brought up a fantastic point so you said about i have my system i have my style and that's what works for you and you've got a a wall full of trophies and a, and a, a huge list of, of clients to reference that you know you've you've done a fantastic job in supporting and help achieve um, their goals in, in harvesting mature buck. And you think about the hunting industry, the people that you have on your podcast, the people that I have on my podcast, the people on all the podcasts, on the network and shows and whatnot, a lot of those guys are extremely successful. Yeah. And they've come up with their own system that works for them. And what's so interesting is that you can look at a wall full of trophies from one guy to the next and ha- think about how many things that they say that do not – they go against the grain with each other. That they, they disagree on this topic versus that. And I think the biggest key is, number one, there's definitely some, some uh, segmentation of where you're hunting in the country, the types of properties. There's a lot of things that – that go into that but there's another thing too is that you know people who push themselves really hard at some point are going to figure it out like they're 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 successful individuals that are going to figure it out under the circumstances they are and it doesn't really make one hunter better than the other but you you just kind of take pieces from from each other i can relate to so much about your show and stuff because there's there's similarities to the 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 property types and the, the conversations you have that i can relate to in my hunting that's why i like your show so much
2: yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. I think the difference really is those environments are more naturalized and controlled, and our environments are a bit more dynamic. And if you're hunting highly pressured ground, like I'm thinking about the size of the property and the seven hunters that are on there on opening day, this is an adjacent property. You start doing the math, it's fifteen to twenty acres, and that's pretty much on average. I hunted uh my family farm was on Allegheny County, a New York State, and the neighbors below us own 200 acres and they had 20, 22 hunters. Mm, so cool. you're looking about 10 people per acre or excuse me, uh, one person per 10 acres. So you're looking at these, this, this, this kind of dynamic. And so like when I'm working with clients, we're like trying to kick people off. I mm. want like low numbers, like, you know, it depends on the size of the property. I've worked with some pretty large properties, but like you're looking at the average person per acre, right? And there, there's like calculations that seem to be like normalized and it's like 40 to 50, you know, acres per person like that's that's a typical like ideal scenario Um, most of the time you're breaking that most people break that rule um, because they have family and then the question is you know don't you want to enjoy your property well I try to enjoy my property in increments like it's not just about hunting season and if that's we're only enjoying your property you're missing out Um, and it's shifting the hunting to more of how can we manage and maintain and improve my property So we get people thinking less about the hunting season and, and more about, you know, the habitat or evolving the property and just enjoying it. Like I said, if I can be on my property 25 days a year, um, and part of those are hunting, I'm taking 20 of those days and I'm working on habitat and I'm killing on those five days that, that I have time. But, you know, I may hunt my property three times this year and, you know, you're like, boy, but I spent a whole bunch of time off season on it running a chainsaw and doing the fine work and, Boy, I tell you, there can't be more projects. On a 48-acre property that I own, there's more projects for one guy than I can shake a stick at right now. Mm. That is hard for one guy to manage that that amount of land and, and run a business and have a family. If you're a single person or you don't have a lot of um, you know extracurriculars and you can focus on property, yeah, I could do 100 acres on an annual basis and optimize it, and every inch of that property is perfect. Yeah, absolutely could do that. Um, They have to be so fine-tuned so the deer flow, I can collect data. And and by the way, it's taking the time to analyze. I mean, are you analyzing your trail camera data? Are you looking at deer utilization all season long? What are they eating? Why are they eating it? What areas are they co-locating? How frequently are they using those areas? Do I want to increase frequency? What do I need to do to increase frequency in those areas? There's a lot to think about when you're coming up with a plan. Um, The other thing is, you know, deer, people think deer, I know this is off topic, but deer correlate um deer correlate um or people correlate deer with edge species they think they're like a specialized edge species okay that is wrong that is like a fallacy the only reason there would be any truth in that statement is there's vegetation that attracts deer in those areas uh deer like anything 50 inches below so if you went in and you don't want to do anything like you don't want to manage timber you just want to cut everything cut everything down to the ground okay cut everything down again. Now that's going to make it hard to hunt because the deer could be anywhere. So you got to be a little bit smarter about that. But if you're thinking about creating interest and increasing interest, it's all about what's at 50 inches and lower. And at that point in time, that's when you start to kind of build these foundations of what do I need to do on my hunting property. And by the way, you know, depending on, you know, the, the density of that cover deer may or may not use it. A lot of times it's, it's unaccessible are inaccessible and as a result of that it becomes less valued on the landscape and so you you could start to gauge quality of habitat um just physically looking at it: is is edible not edible food what's the density how accessible it is and it's starting to have like kind of a deeper focus on what you can do and it's not we 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 joke my partner and i joke is it's we say kicking dirt and cutting trees it's more involved than that and we have rule sets like great rule set is how large should this bed be. How, lo- how what's the size of the bed? What's the relative slope of that bed? Is it more than three degrees, four degrees? Is that a problem? It might be. Um, is it elevated as uh, compared to the, the resident area around it? But you're starting to think about these really fine-tuned features on the landscape. And like I said, you're spending a lot of time on your property. Why not optimize it? And you can't just watch a YouTube video and says, oh, put a bedding area and they run around like a racetrack. That doesn't, that's not how it works. If hunting worked that way, I'd be shooting monsters every day of the week. You know, he's running around the racetrack and I'm shooting him like a shooting gallery. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, it's, it's much more involved than that. So even the designs that you see from these other folks are uh, elementary and um, maybe not necessarily um, possible, if that makes sense. And I'm not sure. dissing on anybody. I'm just saying that's the truth. And sometimes your access sucks and you gotta go right up the gut. Well, how are you gonna make that work? And I've had multiple people with poor access, you know, they, they have west access and their only access is straight through the center. And basically, how do you make that work? So you're you're dealing with a lot of problem sets that are difficult.
1: Yeah, and not every property's created equal, not every property sets up for perfect access, and there's so many things that that just throw a monkey wrench into that and that becomes extremely difficult. Um, you had brought up, you know, you have your, your property, 48 acres, you know, and you said that, you know, if I would get 25 days a year, um, you know, I want to make sure I'm doing, you know, off season work in 20 days and hopefully in five days come a buck. First of all, um, that is, that's pretty cool, um, to be able to learn and be able to be that efficient on your property and that's that's a whole other discussion to be able to uh, you know achieve your goal of of the target deer in that amount of time of hunting i think it just pays uh pays testament to the work you do in the off season and your knowledge in that but um along the lines of you know your workload you've got a busy job you're a a full-time consultant you're a family man you have you have children You've got all this other stuff going on, and your time is limited just like mine. So from you being the only person on that property, the only person working it and, and hunting it, do you find yourself that there's a sweet spot? Like, you know, people think when they want to buy their own land for hunting purposes, a lot of time they always think bigger is better. And maybe some cases that's true. But, I mean, do you have a, 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 any logic of, like, this is what I can efficiently handle and be successful uh, when it comes to purchasing property or looking at that? Is there any thought behind that?
2: Yeah, I think I'm again, this is buying the property that either has maintenance requirements to it or not, right? So if you walk in a property, I've been on properties where they've been recently clear cut, the timber has been managed, they've already got kind of a diverse vegetation type across the landscape. Now it's figuring out like solutions for all that and making sure everything's kind of in the right, I guess, either orientation or size um the movement flows well between those Everything's juxtaposed correctly and you're optimizing those because each one of those areas are going to be used at different times when i focus on like a let's say a 50 acre property and it's predominantly woods like my property i knew that was a four-year process i knew by year four um i would take that property from zero to 100 and as a result i killed that big 150 inch deer which is an anomaly in my area right Mm -hmm. there's there's not very few 150 inch deer um so you know it's it's thinking about your time, um, I would say, generally speaking, if it's a one-man show, and by the way, my property is a mile and a half down the road. There's another convenience factor in all this. I'd rather have a property closer to you. Um, That may trump a property farther away so you can do the work. It allows you to optimize it. So I would say that would be the next factor. I don't know, one person, 20 man days a year, roughly thereabouts. Um, You know, If you're retired, it depends on how much you know, how motivated you are, how familiar you are with making, being able to make decisions. Do you like running chainsaws? Like there's so much, there's there's so much uh, thought that needs to go into that kind of discussion. It's pretty loaded. I would love a larger property. I would love to manage a larger property in a better area. I do not have a uh, great hunting area. I'm hunting in a a poor area. And, And at least I think that makes, me have to be a little bit uh, more on my my toes Um, so I do like that because that gives me an edge up and I can talk to people a little bit differently and when I go to these other areas um, it's really easy to kill deer and I shouldn't say that Mm. Um, but but if you can if you can muster up you know 100 acres or 200 acres uh, I would normally say bigger is probably better but a lot of it depends on how easy is the access? Is it close to your home? How much time you're willing to put into the property? And I feel bad because I don't think I'm putting enough time into my property. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm realizing that there's flaws in, uh, in in some things on my property because I don't have the time to manage it correctly. Like I build apartment buildings. That's what I look at. I'm, I've got a lot of elevation change. I've got a lot of like little little nooks and crannies that I can fine tune. I can get deer to flow through the property in, in a cake like fashion. They go from area A to area B to area C and they're staying more resident on my property. There's so many things I can do. You're just cutting timber or managing vegetation that I don't have the time to do. Mm. Um, and so you've got to be able to, especially in hill country, get in those areas and do it efficiently. And it's really hard. So maybe it means cutting in benches and giving yourself a little bit more access via, you know, some of the trail systems that you put in place that may be more valued than somebody um, at that point running the chainsaw for the first couple of years on your property, et cetera. So I'm getting off topic, but I think that's a tough question to answer.
1: It, it's a very tough question to answer. I mean, I, I yeah. followed in Last night, uh, I, I told you last night I was able, I, I shot a doe on my property. Um, and my, my is literally, like I have an acre of woods and a wood lot that connects some, some stuff and there's, it's a decent deer (laughs) density. I mean, it's, um, but you know, even there, I was looking at how deer moved in that area. I'm just thinking, you know, as I'm sitting in the tree stand, I need to do this. I need to, I I need to steer it this way and do it this way. That would be so so much more efficient. I'm just not taking the time. And there's other properties I hunt. I'll be sitting in the stand thinking like, this would be so much better if the time was taken to manipulate. Manipulate the habitat this way and stuff, and it's it, it, time is a huge thing. Um, yeah. It what, what so uh, another question I just thought of: what's easier to manage, then deer and properties, or people? Because you just talked about um, twenty-two people on two hundred acres on that neighboring property or whatever that was, and some people. And uh, I, I feel like when you start getting into the weeds of habitat management and YouTube and everything else. Um, it, it's, it's almost more of a people management thing. I like, what's your take?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's why I take the people out of the equation. Um, I don't really let many people hunt with me. Um, I won't even, my partner won't hunt with me. Uh, he won't hunt with me because his hygiene isn't what I need him to, to have in order to access my property. That That's his first issue. But you know, um, that's funny. He, he, he won't clean his boots. Um, but, but the reality of it is, is like you know, in that circumstance, you know, I would think, go back to our rule, 40 to 50 acres per person. I mean, these are just numbers that I'm making up, right? Mm -hmm. But if if it's 40 to 50 acres, I mean, they need a thousand acres and they're just stacking up because for them, it's a party and, you know, their hunting can considerably gets worse as hunting season goes on. And are you looking to have, you know, you know, what are your ultimate goals? Are you looking to build, you know, interest on your property? Are you looking to increase deer numbers? Are you looking to increase age class? Well, if you're trying to have any of those goals, you're going to have to hunt a lot smarter and you're going to have to have some real strategy behind it. Um, I'm not hunting necessarily on a whim. Like I'm looking at a specific deer going in to kill him. If Joe Blow, my buddy comes and hunts with me and screws up an area, uh, so to speak. And by the way, I would go hunt with my neighbors. If my neighbors want to invite me, I would hunt the heck with them. Um, and obviously that looks a little selfish because I'm taking pressure off my own property, but I'm trying to get options for people that I hunt with. And if I've got a group of guys that are coming with me, I'm hoping to have a couple other farms for them to kind of go room or, or, you know, hunt. And, and I don't want I shouldn't say room, but, but go access and, and spend some time on, because the areas that are good that I've put a lot of time and effort, those become very valued to me. And that time in the off season is going to be valuable during, during hunting season. And I want to take advantage of that. I don't want to be distracted.
1: That's a great answer. And, you know, you said this on, on your episodes too, before, like every time you enter your property, have a purpose, you know, whether, whether that's, um, you know, making something better, you know, talk about always having a chainsaw with you in some cases, but, you know, um, you talked about pressure Um, and and going into a a piece to hunt. Uh, I'm coming from at this from a hunting angle now, um without having a designated purpose of of where you're going I mean it's every time you enter the woods you're having an impact to some degree on the local deer herd and the deer movement and you want to be calculated in that and that's one of the things I'm trying to learn to just be a a better hunter more efficient make better decisions I think we all are I mean that's I think that's why we do this in a sense right um but it's 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 definitely so I mean we're 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 right around an hour John and I know you're a crazy busy guy um we talked a little bit about rut hunting. You talked about um, you're probably going to do a little bit of rut hunting this year. Yeah, um, You know, you know leave, leave us with, you know, since this is going to be kind of uh, launched right around that first week of November and rut hunting times, I mean, just... Leave us with something that to, to to ponder as we're hunting the rut you know i I already shared with you you know i'm I struggle sometimes to really connect this time of year so I mean is it is it because I'm not uh looking at the pro at some of the places I hunt um, the right way during the rut is it um, am am i am I too passive in you know hunting maybe let's just be really theoretical here the outside edges and i'm not trying to intrude on the interior is this a time frame where maybe i need to consider being more aggressive or people should in general i mean just what are your thoughts on that when it comes to that i I know i don't want you to to give too much away because you know you're you're talking about hunting a rut you don't want to give your strategy away but i mean just from a general sense i mean what what comes to mind
2: yeah i think it i think it's it depends on uh so I, I have a tendency to be more aggressive. And I, as I've gotten a little more age, uh, I've become more aggressive um, and less conservative uh, because I, I'm, not, I'm not looking to prove anything. And I think it's important to kind of diagnose, okay, what, what's your end objective? If your end objective at that pace is you, you want to shoot a mature deer and you're hoping a mature deer comes through, and maybe that deer is resident, um, it's likely not in that circumstance. So you want to put yourself in the best location. If you haven't designed your property to pinch deer down, um, you're going to haunt basically easy to access areas where they can have wind advantage. That's generally the philosophy around that. Um, I can think of an, uh, a hunting situation a few years ago where I, um, I I knew where deer would come through during the rut uh, because they would scent check a hillside. And they would, um, it was an east facing hillside. And I typically try to get really high in east-facing hillsides in the mornings, uh, particularly in the rut. This deer came below me. Okay, so this deer came below me, and it was probably a 38-yard shot that I decided not to take. It, I felt a little bit, a little too far, a little steep angle. And I was positioned correctly, but he wasn't positioned correctly. Now, if I was below in that circumstances, I may or may have not got winded. And if I this the change in elevation in this area is about 150 feet. So it's significant. And the deer went from area A to area B, hillside, walked up a small saddle. He didn't, like this saddle was very like, it's it's obvious, but it's like small. He went right up the center of it and trees were falling all over the place. But he went right through that saddle point. And it wasn't a clear delineated trail. I had a clear delineated trail right around where I was. But I had a good feeling the deer would go from area A to area B. But the path of resistance, the least resistance, forget that debris, was from that area to the next area below me and i just totally misinterpreted it because it was the easy trail that that i had that i was aware of that was that was right closer to my tree stand so again it could have been a little bit of small work where i pinched that trail off now i fixed the spot now all the deer come through that location but i just pinched the deer a little bit closer to me so i can take that 30 yard shot that eight yards is a big difference for me uh, making a shot specifically on a steep angle mm-hmm. and that was a steep angle shot that, that I didn't feel comfortable taking because it's hard to double long a deer in, in those circumstances. So it's just having awareness of your conditions, the angle of your shot, where deer are going to come through. And what I would recommend is take the time to hunt the rut and it's a grind. It's a time grind. Spend as much time observing as you can the woods and figure out why deer, tell yourself a story. Why did that get deer go from area A to area B? Now, I know why he went from area A to area B. He got kicked out of one bedding area, chased a bunch of does around. They headed up over a hillside. He didn't have a clue where they went, and he came across an easy access point that I just didn't have set up correctly. And, you know, it's just being on those easy-to-access locations. But basically, I like the dumbbell shape. I like hunting them in transition. I hunt every deer in transition if I can. Usually there's an access issue, but your access doesn't tend to be a a problem and by the way the deer didn't cut my track because the way i circled in that area his his path i came over the top i didn't come up Mm if i came up he would have cut my track it would have been all over Um, and they're very observant at that point in time particularly when they're alone and he was a mature buck he was a four i think he was a four and a half year old Mm -hmm. buck, at least four and a half or older um so i would suggest that you locate yourself in between two bedding areas in transition um if you can define those bedding areas more power to you uh consider the path of least resistance and then think about the frequency of use i gave you a little trick earlier of how to get does to spend more time at a veterinary putting food in there but i don't penetrate those areas very frequently and if i do there's a real purpose behind it that i know that that buck is going to be breeding a doe in that area and it's very hard to predict where they're actually going to breed a particular doe you're catching deer more in transitional movement so don't pressure those areas too much because the more you lay down scent those does become very obscure they don't spend a lot of time in those areas. And basically you go from time where deer are very social to time where deer are not very social during the rut. And that, when I say social, I mean the does become very scattered. And in in essence, if you're putting a lot of boots in, in those areas, you're gonna blow every single doe out of the county in that area. And it's just gonna go to the neighbor's property. And by the way, that's why you're not normally seeing deer during the rut. So mm-hmm. pretty simple example, but a mistake that I made I was in the right location the setup wasn't correct and if i just took an extra day to just do a little bit of work i would have killed the, killed that deer um, i happen to be tagged out at that point <laughs> thank goodness because i told everyone earlier i'm not trying to kill them in the rut but i'm observing because it's a fun time to learn how deer move through the landscape and yeah. study the way they use terrain because the way deer use terrain it's going to vary in your area i have a lot of undulation ups and downs kind of drumlin settings and you know those elevation chains the steepness Saddles are really critical during those times of year. Typically, deer, I don't usually see them go right up a saddle pinch, but they'll go diagonal on a saddle pinch and they'll, they'll focus on a flat spot or hub area because there'll be a lot of concentration in air and they'll be a, we'll, we'll call them a thermal hub. Uh, it's just, it's an area where there's a lot of swirling or scent checking that becomes very easy for deer. Um, and it's usually those areas are very compressed areas. So air comes very compressed to those areas and it's easy to scent check what's around them. Don't hunt those areas. Stay away from those saddle points, but hunt north or south of those or some mm-hmm. other locations so there's another strategy
1: what did it uh, real quick what did it take to fix that scenario where that buck kind of slipped up that saddle
2: so i went w- this is another thing like i didn't fix that trail i went way back and so when that deer was coming out of that bedding area um i kind of um pushed that deer to come out of that bedding area in a v so it had to come up on the higher trail towards me but i didn't totally block off that other trail because i want to keep this line of movement because the neighbor wasn't able to hunt that particular portion. And they're all going to the same location. I just couldn't access the location that they're going to and neither can the neighbor. So I worked it back at the bedding area where I basically shaped their movement where they have to go up higher or they prefer to go up higher. So I cut the trail up way, way back there. And if they want to s- straggle down and go to the other trail- yards make, sure away, I,
1: make sure I follow you, John. You're saying you actually went where that deer was going back there is where the improvement needed to be made in order yes. to bring those deer in. So it was actually not at the source in that situation.
2: Yeah, because what happens in those source areas is they have a tendency, like, I want to start the trend of movement way back rather than at the point, because what ends up happening is debris falls over, unless you're really able to like like put a ton of debris in those areas. And if you are, you, you could do it at the source and pinch the deer up. I just wasn't able to do that in this location. Um, and I didn't want it to be very obvious to the neighbor that I was pinching the deer down near an adjacent area that they hunt. I, they can visually see this area. And I'm basically pulling the deer up at a higher point and I'm moving them along the lines to the next bedding area, which so happens to be uh, an area that I'm unable to hunt because of its its isolation. I will not get back in that far in their property because I, I believe that puts too much intrusion on the deer and, and it affects their behavior. Like I said earlier, pressure is is paramount. Right. And we don't want to put a lot of pressure on the deer. So it's this like gingerly advice of balancing pressure, thinking about how deer use terrain. You could do a whole podcast on how deer use terrain and their preferences, mm. but observe that. And then basically after diagnosing how deer use terrain, you know, you may be able to set your property up a little bit different. And like I said earlier, working at the source and pinching the deer's movement down will give you that advantage and to make your hunting that much productive. Once that you're done, you kill that deer and you move on.
1: That's a ton to uh, ton to digest. It always is whenever I listen to you. But I um it, it, I, that was that's really interesting when you when you talked about fixing that situation. I, I find myself a lot when I walk through the woods, whether I have a chainsaw or just looking and observing. I find a lot of the time I, I look at it from a point source in uh, diagnosing a problem and i never really looked at it and thinking about okay this is where he's coming from this is where he's going why is that and, and it's it's it can be fixed anywhere in between that line of movement it's not directly here at this 38 yard spot that i want to move him eight yards like yeah. what i gathered <laughs> from that tell me if it was wrong you moved a deer eight yards by making a cha- transition not right at 38 yards it was further away and that that's Yeah, I never thought of it that way.
2: Well, and here's why, Um, because that hunting location, I may get picked off at that hunting location at some point, and maybe people have the same opinion. But uh, if I get picked off in a tree and I'm not able to kill that deer, I'm not hunting that tree again. Um, So I want options. So I don't want the hunting location to be um, predisposed to issues as a result of of issues that are because I'm pinching them too close or making some decisions like that. I want to give myself options in that hunting location and I can do it back at the source, which gives me more opportunity where I want to kill that deer. And again, I'm not hunting them in that, in that location, you know, behind me. Um, and then that hunting location is probably 80 yards away mm-hmm. or excuse me, that bedding area is about 80 yards away. So I'm some distance away from those bedding areas. I'm not on top of them like a lot of people get. Um, but I've hunted bedding areas where I'm literally right in the bedding area, like right in the edge of it. And it's like, ooh, I feel like icky when I'm doing that. Uh, but but, but again, I, I, I may know their movements and their patterns tend to do something. And as a result, I that's my only option because maybe I can't manipulate an area well enough to kind of pinch them down. So, you know, it just depends on the circumstance. Um, when I'm hunting big woods, you're going to be very focused in the bedding areas. If you're hunting public land, you're going to be very on top of things. Whereas I'm able on private land to pick my shot a little bit and step off and I like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you can, like I said, if you can pick these locations and diagnose the whys and how they utilize them, it's pretty easy to select preferential habitats for deer and and emphasize and and just amplify their interest and then just control their movement. That's really not difficult to do once you have kind of the fundamentals down. And, um, you know, that's kind of what I teach with my business. And, uh, you know, like I told you earlier, like, I mean... I, gosh, this year is not going to be that year for me, mm-hmm. but over the past three years on my property, we have hunted three times and we killed three bucks. It's hundred percent success, you know, and, and that, when you get to that point, it's, it's not, it's not that I'm a great hunter. It's just that I've set the property up. It's made it more optimal to hunt mm-hmm. and I'm just shifting probabilities. That's all I'm doing. And so it makes my success rate instead of being 25%, a hundred percent. Now, there's more that goes into the, the the strategy behind killing a specific deer and how you diagnose his behavior and movements, but if you're setting it up better, your 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 probability goes up, and that's that's really the goal behind the business, you know. So.
1: Yeah and you know that that's a whole other like multi-series episode that you could do with somebody is diagnosing the specific uh habits and traits of a deer you're targeting and coming up with a thing and we just don't have enough time for that today but you know yeah, one, yeah. One, one thing that I've I've really picked up listening to you both in your show and even listening today is you're always observing um, how they're moving through an area. To, and we didn't even talk about this today, but, um, I would be really interested to pick your brain sometime or, you know, listen to some of your other episodes where you're talking about the use of trail cameras and how you're using them. Because I find myself so often with trail cameras that, um, setting them to picture mode, going through really, really fast and saying, okay, this is when a mature buck went through here and not really, um, seeing the whole picture from trail cameras. I mean, that's something that I think is hard. And, you know, some people have the logic that more cameras is better. I mean, you know, from the angle, uh, I know I listened to a podcast that Steve Shirk did, and he said, literally the places I hunt, I can't have too many cameras. You know, you know, he, he talks about having 100 to 200 cameras. And he's like, he goes, if I had the time and resources, I'd have 500 cameras. And like, you think about that, that's huge. But then that's a whole different ball game when you're talking about private land and what you need out of that private land and you know that would be something to to uh to pick your brain about but yeah i would
2: i would argue with somebody just real quick if you are you know interested in using cameras it's it's not the camera i mean the camera does matter the location of the camera matters it's setup matters all that stuff matters um but what is most important is are you taking the time to look at the data if you're not taking the time to look at the data and you're just scrolling through it and by the way i'm guilty of this myself so Mm -hmm. if you're just going to scroll through the data um you're not going to get the level of information you need to make decisions but it's really nice because if you have one particular deer you're trying to kill and you've got it littered with cameras or clustered or whatever the case may be and you you can diagnose uh his movements like one of my deer this morning moved across at two o'clock so what i 2 a.m this morning it's interesting he moved across at 2 a.m this morning and he moved um kind of in a expected pattern like ext- that's his that's his form of movement he's consistently chosen that, but he's changed his time he's done that. And I'm interested in what what created that disturbance. Um, And I may not know the answer to that, Mm -hmm. but I do know how he moved through the landscape at a certain point in time. And that's thinking about, you know, what's its relationship to your hunting location and what's the frequency and interval of that. And then how does he interact with other deer in that area? Were there other deer in that area? Look at the conglomerate of data and then start to break down the weather conditions, um, humidity levels. Um, why I was in a lower area versus an upper area based on the wind conditions and speed of wind? I said was very important It's very important speed of wind is literally the most important thing that I would start to diagnose on the landscape Directional and speed of wind those are the two most important things humidity levels right up there with those I'm looking at the relative humidity level and so, you know There's there's things that you may not hear of that people pay attention to we talked earlier about the moon I weigh the moon, but I don't weigh the moon as much as I would in uh, other instances um, you know, these, these full moon periods, when are they most productive while well, they're most productive in areas that don't have a lot of high pressure on them, you're going to be minimize their movement is the, is the moon going to amplify their movement? It may in certain instances, not where I hunt, it doesn't, but on some of my clients' properties, it does. So picking the right days, like we talked earlier, October 2nd through October 6th, that was a good period of time. You're going to have just prior to November 1st, you're going to have a good window in there. That was going to be paramount. There's going to be a ton of movement in that just based on the moon phase. But again, we don't know the weather conditions. And right now, looking into a week, week or two based on the weather fronts, the temperature is going to increase. We're going to be in the 60s again. Uh, and by the way, if you put it like I just put like winter rye all over my food plots and my corn areas, I wanted you know to put some cover crops in. I'm like jumping up for joy because I'm building soil. And I'm actually going to create interest in those areas as well, particularly in spring spring springtime. Uh, when when you know those 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 young crops start to develop and i'm very excited because i'm focusing on creating interest on my property all season long and if anybody tells you that you should only create interest in food plots or all that stuff or working habitat during certain portions of the year and that's how you build a deer herd they're wrong they're completely wrong you're building a deer herd and deer interest all season long it may change your decisions to trigger control or you know what deer you're selecting like we talked about earlier Thinking about the herd on a more larger basis, but creating interest on your property is very, very critical. And that will create such a better opportunity for you to be successful. And if I can do it on 48 acres, anybody can do it. Because I'm in a hard-to-hunt area. My deer populations are anywhere between 15 to 25 deer per square mile. The age class is horrible, and the ratios, the doe-to-buck ratios, are poor. So I've done it in very difficult circumstances, and I think people can relate to that because that's that's the common person. And if you have access to better hunting areas, invite me out on your property because I'll help you kill boners, okay? Because it's a totally different dynamic and <laughs> skill set goes into that strategy, okay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, John, absolutely, John. Right. Well, um, John, again, I can't thank you enough. Every time I listen to you talk, it, it's, it's trying to soak it in like a sponge. And, uh, I I feel like I always have to listen over to a show sometimes just because you're very articulate in your descriptions and it's, it's, it's great detail. It's, it's helping me as a hunter think outside the box. And I think anybody who listens to this, so, um, real quick, um, just give, give a little plug to people finding you, listening to whitetail landscapes, um, anything with your business that you'd like to share before we go.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, anybody who, um, you know, wants to contact me for consulting, I have a couple spots left in 2023. Uh, I do travel, um, and, you know, uh, your client base is obviously in Pennsylvania, but uh, obviously other people listen to this podcast. I do travel. Um, I will support people in other locations in other states, um, and I do have folks that are doing implementation work, and I may start growing my staff. Um, so there may be people that, that uh, will be supporting me over the next year or so. It's kind of in process right now. Um, the podcast is great. Please listen to the podcast. Um, The reason I'm doing the podcast is to give back and help educate. And by the way, I'm getting educated on this podcast from other land managers across the country. So it's an awesome opportunity for me to connect with people. Mitch, you've been on my podcast, Mm -hmm. right? You helped support the food plot stuff and did an excellent job. I mean, you know, a ton of information, right? That's your area of expertise. And uh, I'm happy to have people that have, you know, very keen interest in certain aspects. And I will say one thing. If you're building a hunting property or you want to get into this, it's all these little indices. Uh, To be successful, it takes a lot of small changes in order to kind of build the bigger picture. And if you're not doing all the small things right, you will not be successful. Uh, Do not get tied into the information that's out there that um, doesn't give you the end conclusion. It gives you a lot of information, but it's hard to piece and parcel together. You gotta have some rule sets and strategy behind it. Because if you're gonna spend time make it efficient don't waste your time that that applies to habitat work and hunting and uh, and to me that's most important because time is a, a, is a value and weigh your time put a price tag on your time and may consider hiring somebody to get you in the process and get you flowing quicker because most of my clients they've been doing the same thing for 20 years and failing and you can hire me for two days and change your whole world Exactly. and not do that that's an easy step to success um, whether it's running a chainsaw, putting in food plots, dealing with you know any type of land management issues, stream management zones, or you know, we're trying to build a property for silviculture purposes in concert with deer habitat. How do you do that? What's the, there's real strategies behind everything. And it's so simple. We've tried to make it more complex than it needs to be. And by the way, deer, the cognitive ability to assess what's going on around them is low to none, okay? so they're instinctual they're not smarter than us as, as humans we have the ability to outsmart them use your brain apply and that's why you know a lot of these people that listen to these podcasts are su- successful because they want to learn more so i guess tune in and thanks for listening to me today ran
1: no it, it. it's not a rant at all it's uh it's a great conversation so john thanks again
2: all right mitch thanks man for having me on talk to you soon buddy